This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. British Prime Minister Theresa May announcing over the weekend that she would like to get the Brexit negotiations rolling by the end of March. That news sent the value of the British pound lower, and it continues a bit of an uneasy feeling as the region prepares for the U.K. exit from the EU. To take a little bit uh, deeper look at this, we're joined by Michelle Egan, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University. She's also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Michelle, welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. Uh, The fact that Theresa May made this designation, I I don't necessarily think that it's more than really just a a part of the process, yet it has had a little bit of an impact. Yes, it has. I think there's both a political and an economic impact. What she's looking at is the fact that she herself will have to have an election by 2020. And secondly, the European Parliament and European Commission, Parliament's going to vote on this deal, is actually going to be changing in 2019. So if she switches the button and decides to leave in March 2017, she has two years. So she's looking at a political timetable as well as sort of the economic uncertainty and implications. Uh, You still almost get a little bit of a sense that portions of Europe still maybe are in a little bit of disbelief that this is actually happening. Absolutely. You've actually seen a surge uh, in some of the more Eurosceptic states like Denmark, um, basically being more supportive of the EU than they have been in the past. So it sort of had a, a sort of effect on other states who were saying, you know, we, you know, we're looking at this and we're looking at the disarray. We don't want this. So it has had a blowback effect politically. Is there even a remote possibility that that uh, that the UK could pull back on this, or are we too far along and, and Theresa May would lose so much credibility if she did not follow through with this? She made it very clear. Brexit means Brexit. And mm. uh, as a politician, she's extremely cautious, which I think is why she did not trigger it straight away. But I think you're starting to see the British uh, Foreign Service, the Treasury, and others really getting their act together about what they would actually like in terms of a a trade deal and a negotiating uh, strategy. So if the timetable is in fact correct, and and as we said, Theresa May said that she would like to get these, uh, these talks going by the end of March, how long of a process do you think this probably will be? Because as we've mentioned on this show before, it's not exactly a a, uh, a week or two thing to get this all done. I mean, there's certainly lots of different machinations that have to have to be played through. That's absolutely right. Once Article 50 is triggered, only the British government can do that. It's a two-year window to do so. And you know with any trade negotiations, you know, as soon as you get closer to the deadline, which then things start happening, the real deliverables, the political issues. So they're under a tight time frame. And remember, they can't negotiate any other free trade agreement or sort of see themselves in a new position um, within the WTO until they divorce from the EU. And until that time that they're actually formally leaving and uh, they repeal all the acts, 
that join the EU, they're still subject to EU laws, regulations, and judicial um, decisions. What will end up being the, the, the path that probably the sterling, will, uh, sterling pound will take over the next few months as well? Because it seems like it, it, the overall effect, it, there's been a little bit of an overall effect, but it hasn't been a massive one. And obviously this announcement made by Theresa May over the weekend, and we saw the pound uh, you know, take a little bit of a dive. Well, what's interesting about this is a lot of people who said remain uh, sort of had a really bad scenario coming out of the, this will be terrible, we'll go into a recession. And what we saw in the initial post-referendum in July, unemployment has stayed at around 4.9%. The indicators that we've been seeing are that company output sales, orders, employment levels, they've actually appeared quite buoyant and surprisingly enough. The Bank of England responded, lowered interest rates, and restarted quantitative easing. I would not look at Theresa May's statements. I would actually look at uh, Philip Hammond, the chancellor. He's been focusing very interestingly about what we will do uh, in terms of our path through 2020. And he's announced infrastructure spending, housing growth, and uh, money for the housing crisis, a focus on regional economic in, uh, development. He's also sort of dropped the plan to eliminate the deficit by 2020. So he's focusing on jobs, economy, and living yeah. standards. Yeah, it, it is interesting because uh, as much as you want to think about a lot of those uh, issues and how uh, they will change for uh, the U.K. going forward, that that one of the overriding themes always seems to be immigration and and, and the fact that, uh, that that people in the UK feel like they need to take their control of immigration back rather than what has been played out under the EU over the last uh, couple of years. What I think is important is how the immigration debate is different in Britain versus the rest of Europe. A lot of the concern in the rest of Europe has been with refugees, migrants coming in from outside of the EU. The debate in Britain has really focused on EU nationals coming into Britain. But there are going to be some costs about that, and there's been a lot of disagreement about what they will do. What will they do with the 3 million existing EU nationals already in the UK? Mm-hmm. When will they start putting up any borders or visa requirements and so forth? And what will they do with the almost 1 million EU uh, British citizens who are in other EU member states? This will all be part of the reasoning. The one thing they have to think about, though, is the fact that, you know, we have flexible labor markets in Britain, and a good portion of our agricultural workforce now are EU nationals. And so there will be some knock-on effects if we do start clamping down on labor mobility. Uh, We're talking with Michelle Egan, who is a professor at American University in the School of International Service. She's also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I think with all the economic issues that that are kind of played out, you forget, and even the immigration part of it, you forget that there is a a basic issue that needs to be discussed, and it obviously will, as you you said, over the next several months, of so many uh, people that are from other countries that are working in England or working within the UK and, as you said, the British citizens that are working over in Europe. And you have to get all of that figured out. That's that's a very important piece to this because much of that really relies on uh, the business relationships between both sides. 
It absolutely does. And what's often forgotten is about 44 million trips were made from Britain to the rest of Europe last year for pleasure, for business and so forth. And we benefited from sort of, you know, ease of traveling without visas and passports for so long. Also, airline liberalization has led to cheap flights. And the last thing people don't realize is if you're an EU citizen and you need health care or insurance in other countries and you get sick, you actually can use your uh, European-wide health card. Mm -hmm. All of those things are going to be up in the air. And so there is the issue of border controls, which also impacts business as well. You know, customs procedures, what are the potential tariffs, what's our relationship with the single market, how are we going to make sure we sort of deal with global supply change and integrated production? It's a range of issues. Just from a, a, a basic level, when you think about all of the uh, the cross uh, uh, channel, the channel crossings that go on, whether it be by boat or by train, that that stuff gets impacted as well, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. In terms of, you know, there was a reason why some of the cheaper airlines and startups were very concerned about this and lobbying to remain. And the other issue that you have is, you know, what happens when you have passport controls? What happens when you have customs procedures? All of those things are going to make uh, travel between uh, Britain and the continent much more difficult. And I think Some people may say that that's good because that means we then have borders and then we can have sort of stricter borders for uh, non-British citizens. But it's also going to have an impact on the ease of doing business. One of the things that has been discussed is whether or not this move by the U.K., triggers a similar move by another member of the EU down the road. Do you think that that is is a greater distinct possibility now that Theresa May has said, yeah, let's get this going by the end of March? I think that the Article 50 and the trigger to leave has never been used before. It was put in with the Lisbon Treaty in 2009. I think it's in the interest of the EU, particularly the Commission and the member states, to play hardball. If they make this too easy, if they give too many concessions to Britain, then they risk the chance that other people will want an a la carte Europe as well. Well, and one of the things that has been discussed, and we've talked about it on this show, is the fact that the EU is is kind of a unique partnership to begin with, uh, but it is very hard to really push forth a lot of economic policy because you have so many entities that that are kind of on their own game plan. Uh, and then, uh, you know, even though you have the uh, the euro as kind of the overriding. Uh, uh, overriding uh, money of the of the territory still it's a, it, there's a lot of people that have different philosophies on things they would like to do within their own economies but then you have the overriding issues of the EU as well Absolutely. I mean, there are very divergent uh, economies in Europe. There are some that are much more industrial planning, industrial bargaining. That's what I think the British will be looking at. They've always argued very strongly that we're overregulated. Mm-hmm. But the OECD thinks that we're the least regulated in Europe. But there'll be certain issues that the British will go after in terms of European regulations. I think it'll be perhaps genetically modified foods. It might be 
the chemical regulations, and it also might be some of the working conditions and labor regulations. They don't like some of the rules from the EU on temporary workers and sort of uh, how long people can work per week, working, you know, the not allowing or sort of making it more difficult to do overtime. So there's certain things the Conservative Party and May will likely want to look at. So then how do you view the EU in terms of level of success uh, in, in its time in being right now? Has it done everything it was kind of designed to do? Or because we're kind of sitting in this point right now and the UK is looking to, to, uh, to move out of the uh, European Union, ha- has it left a few things on the table that, that probably should have been addressed a long time ago? I think a lot of this is that if you talk to somebody from Britain, they still use the term common market sometimes, you know, the older generation. And I think it's moved beyond sort of an economic market into other areas, migration, asylum, refugees, uh, internal security. But the core foundation of the EU was meant to be the single market. And quite frankly, that in some ways is a big achievement because we've forgotten about rules of origin issues. We've forgotten about the low tariffs. We've forgotten about addressing non-tariff barriers. We've forgotten how easy that is and how easy it is to have cross-investment. The sort of unfinished business might be, if you like, liberalization of services, which the British were very, very keen on. Mm and perhaps also now the digital single market. So what we're also losing with losing Britain is probably one of the strongest advocates for internal trade liberalization within the EU. Well, and and just from the digital uh, perspective uh, of things, I think a lot of people would agree that even if the, uh, you know, when the UK moves out, uh, of the European Union, it would be in the best interest of the EU and uh, the UK to come to a, a an agreement that uh, that really does address a lot of the issues on the digital scope. I mean, obviously, you have uh, companies like Apple and Google that are getting pressed over their businesses over there. We obviously have concerns uh, just uh, over in Europe, like you have here in the United States, uh, of hacking and all sorts of different issues. It, it, there are probably still some areas where it is in in the best interest of all parties to be on the same page. It is. If you think of things like, say, product standards and some things that you need in terms of products, considering the cross-investment. But the other issue to remember is that Britain is a service economy. It's a very unbalanced economy in the sense that things were tied around very much the city of London. And so the question for many people is, will Britain be allowed sort of the single passport system for financial services? And that's important for cross-border investment, free movement of capital. Also, you know, the financial services processes most transactions in euros. And so Frankfurt and Paris are going to be looking at this and saying that should not remain with the city. And so I do think you're going to see the most important debates about the issue of the city of London. And I think Theresa May over the weekend made it very, very clear, as did Philip Hammond, that this is not going to be a negotiation all for the benefit of the city of London.
We're talking with Michelle Egan uh, from American University, professor in the School of International Service. We're talking about getting an update on the Brexit, which uh, sounds like, according to Theresa May, the negotiations are going to get underway at the latest by the end of the month of March in 2017. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So for the people that are listening to us here in in the United States, uh, Michelle, and for those of us uh, that are listening up in Canada, what are the impacts? with this Brexit moving forward with those two nations? Well, I think the big issue is obviously the free trade agreements. I mean, trade is not having a good time in the political climate here in uh, Washington right now, and it's tied up with the presidential election campaign. But we do have two trade agreements, one completed, Canada, CETA, and one that was ongoing, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. The issue now becomes very complicated with Britain leaving, but it also sort of takes off the table a strong supporter of the transatlantic trade agreement. Britain has sort of indicated it would like an individual free trade agreement with the United States, but very, very clearly this does raise some issues. Trade is not a good issue to be talking about right now, but on the one hand, you know, the EU is moving forward with at least the Canadian uh, free trade agreement for ratification, but TTIP right now is on hold. And the, the U.S. has to evaluate what does it mean if Britain leaves for our negotiating position. Uh, there for a while, and, and we I guess we haven't heard a lot of it lately, uh, but I'm sure we probably will as we get closer to uh, to March, uh, was the, the, the topic of whether Scotland was going to leave the UK because of the Brexit vote. Uh, is that something that you focused on, and, and what are you hearing from some of the people that, uh, that you know in this, re- in this realm? Absolutely. I mean, the couple of comments for people to really understand is the collapse of the Labour Party right now and the internal fighting after the Brexit vote. They almost took most of the flack, which was astonishing. Um, Second issue is Scotland. There are a lot of legal and constitutional scholars up there looking at what is the prospect if Scotland uh, decides by a majority to stay in, what happens if Brexit occurs, and The Theresa May and the Conservative government has said, we are a union, we are a nation, we are doing this as Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and the UK. So that's going to be a very difficult issue. Right now, there is not an overwhelming support in the polls for a second Scottish referendum, but I think the larger issue is going to be Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland will require a hard border between North and South if Brexit really happens. And there are a lot of concerns about what that will mean, because the we've forgotten 20 years ago we had a Northern Ireland peace yeah. process, the yeah. Good Friday Agreement, and one of the issues as part of that peace process was open borders. Well, and and they, if you know, I'm sure most of the people listening to us know the long history of uh, of, uh, of violence between North and South in Ireland uh, over the decades. And certainly, I, whether you have a wall or however that plays out, you would think that the potential of any level of violence could come back because of that. There are a lot of cross-border discussions going on right now, both between political parties, but also civil society groups. This is a big issue because, you know, we've had this 20-year peace accord, which has been very mixed. But on the one hand, you know, there's sort of been a lot of cross-border cooperation and the economies. We have forgotten 
just what percentage of the Northern Ireland economy, a third of Northern Ireland's exports go to the South, go to the Republic of uh, Ireland. And so the economies are highly intertwined. And so that's a very, very big concern. The question will be is whether Ireland, which will remain in the EU, will ask for some form of special legal status for Ireland to allow sort of that cross-border movement. But there are some people who are concerned that a whole host of people may then, you know, turn up in Ireland and then go through the border to Northern, Eng- to Northern Ireland and use that as a way to enter the British um, economy and the British job market. Michelle Egan joins us from American University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you can't get to your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, either at biz, B-I-Z radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Uh, as this gets closer and we start to uh, get closer to the month of March and and the eventual negotiation, what are some of the things that you're really focused on uh, that that you want to see how they play out over the next few months? Well, the first issue would be um, I would look at the autumn statement of Philip Hammond. Nothing to do with Brexit on the one hand, but very much to do with Brexit. He's going to – government might use fiscal policy. It might have spending increases or tax cuts. And he's pledged that any funding that people have in terms of EU funding, businesses, organizations, universities, they will maintain that multi-year funding uh, for the considerable future, for at least five years. So that would be one issue. The second issue, I would say, would be the issue of um, what the negotiating mandate will actually be. And This looks like the British are really wanting a hard Brexit. They don't want to, you know, the question will be about the relationship with the single market. And I think that's going to be really, really important. There are indications that they don't want to be part of the single market. And the third issue, I think, is nobody is talking about is what will Britain's eventual role be in terms of negotiating all these new free trade agreements right. that it will have to do, and what will its relationship be with the WTO? Uh, all of those are unknowns. And obviously the concern of some of the other entities over there in the U.K. is is the fact that uh, that uh, England and, and uh, the, uh, the prime minister, and there would be so much, as you said, influence going towards things that would benefit London and, and that portion, that other areas would be left out, correct? Well, this is the, if we go back to May's first statement when she stood outside uh, with her new position as prime minister, she acknowledged very, very carefully and very clearly that she recognized the income inequality in Britain and the sort of uh, economic divergence that had happened with some of the northern areas, those that voted to, to leave. And so you can see it with the new infrastructure plans, with the new easing of austerity. This is a prime minister who wants to promote everyone, not just the city of London. I think that's a little bit of an abrupt shift from the Cameron government and Osborne. So I think that's very, very important. And so you're going to see an effort to try and increase and boost productivity and sort of infrastructure investment in Britain. And I think that's a very important recognition of what the Brexit vote meant. The name you mentioned, actually, we hadn't talked about, and and it's worth uh, uh, discussing, is 
uh, former Prime Minister Cameron. And obviously, when when this started to play out, I think he expected one thing, and he got totally something different. Uh, has there been any conversation or a comment by him uh, about what has been happening uh, over the last uh, couple of months in preparation for this uh, Brexit negotiation? No, he resigned immediately. And this was always about internal party management of the Conservative Party, and he lost. And he's obviously stepping down from his own position as a member of Parliament. And so you have not heard, but, you know, it's very clear that... uh, Theresa May kept a few members of his cabinet, but she has also brought in what she feels is her own uh, perspective, her own uh, supporters. Um, It's an interesting thing that most people are focusing on the three um, Brexiteers, if you like, um, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson and uh, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, and David Davis, who are all responsible for trade, foreign policy, and uh, the the Brexit uh, portfolio. And the question is, what is their responsibilities? I would pay a lot of attention to Theresa May and Philip Hammond, because at the end of the day, they're very close. And Theresa May is a very cautious politician. That's the one thing people should go away with. She will know when she is going to trigger that vote, and they will have a negotiating mandate. And the question right now is trying to, you know, when you have any new administration, you've got, you know, reorganization. And that's what's going on right now. But Cameron, we have not heard from. Great to have you on the show, Michelle. Thank you for your insight. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Michelle Egan from American University in the School of International Service. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.